Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of, and coming up, the vanity of vanities, Ecclesiastes. If I'm allowed to take a few uh, meandering steps here, I came to what I think of as an interesting revelation, not as good as the book of revelations with the end times and all that. Mine would maybe fall into the category of uh, just plain nifty, but there are certain religious people out there who truly believe that the Bible is the word of God. And if that's true, well, someone physically wrote the Bible. It's just transcription, like some Lazy Boss, one of those jowly types from 80s movies, he basically dictated it to his secretary. But it really was the big G-man who wrote it. So, if we take that to be true, then he, capital H, him, you know, the big guy, he wrote Ecclesiastes. And if that's true, then it turns out God wrote, or should I say co-wrote, a number one single. And I'm not talking about some kind of vague divine intervention here. Like, you know, the kind of I'm so special that God just drops hit songs into my brain. I'm talking about actual writing, like actual lyrics. I'm talking about the song Turn, Turn, Turn. It's probably most famously a bird song, but it was originally a folk song by Pete Seeger. So music and melody by Pete, but lyrics by the Lord, the creator, the supreme being. So take a look at the uh, so-called great songwriting teams out there, like Lennon McCartney, for example. Here we have Seeger, God, or God Seeger, if you prefer. So do you want to explain Ecclesiastes to everyone, or do you just want to crank the song and get us in some sort of copyright trouble? So God wrote some of the lyrics for that Seeger song. Man, the, the fun facts I learned from you. Anyway, so, so first, and as usual, a brief summary. So Ecclesiastes is known as one of the, um, the wisdom books of the Old Testament, alongside the, uh, the book of Job, Song of Songs, and Proverbs. It was written sometime between 450 and 200 BC, and actually its, its author is unknown. Ecclesiastes teaches that the things of the earth, including human beings, are only temporary, and that all is vanity. And um, the proper response to this is to eat, drink, and be merry, 
and be satisfied with our work while we're here. Uh, Despite my effusive excitement in the opening, it doesn't seem like God and Pete Seeger did any other hit making together. So if God can't hold a group together, what hope can anyone have? Like the aforementioned Leonard McCartney or rounding him out, the Beatles. John once famously said that they were bigger than Jesus. But today I want to focus on, I really want to talk about not the Beatles, because, you know, just like Seeger and God, they broke up. I really want to think about John's solo work. If I can offer a red hot take, his solo stuff is not quite as good as the Beatles. But I do quite like one song that he wrote called God. The majority of the song is him just just listing things like listing things that he doesn't believe in, like a top 40 John Lennon doesn't believe in stuff. It includes magic, the Bible, Tarot, Hitler, Jesus, Elvis, Zimmerman, Bob Dylan's real last name, or the Beatles. I would have personally added a gas station toilet paper, you know, the stuff that's somehow like really, really thin, but ends up being really coarse and uncomfortable, but... Who am I? But at the beginning, before the list, he sings, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. And then for good measure, he says it again. We could try and parse what he meant, but he did make me think about God. And if he actually exists, is he, is he kind of like the angry guy that works at the gas station I go to? Is he actually not very nice? Like, does he really like me? Like us. Wow, so God is like the angry guy who works at the gas station that you go to. Now, I think the author of Ecclesiastes expresses your concern in a slightly different way. But that's okay, I think I get your point. Okay, so let's just jump into this idea that that God might not be quite as good, or even as understandable, as he's sometimes taken to be. Because really, this is the feeling that we get when we read Ecclesiastes. Okay, so Bertrand Russell once said that it's undesirable to believe in a proposition when there is no ground whatever for supposing it's true. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes certainly seems to agree with something like this. Especially so, it seems, when it comes to the conception of God that we see in traditional Jewish theology. So, according to Ecclesiastes, God exists and he seems to have power. But there's no evidence that he's good, or just, or even wise. I mean, let's take the case of goodness or or justice first. In Ecclesiastes, there's just no connection between good human conduct and good fortune. God just seems to assign good or bad luck to human beings in random or capricious ways, without it mattering that someone's being good or bad, pious or impious. In other words, moral goodness receives no rewards on earth, and and wickedness does not meet with punishment. And actually, ultimately, everything just ends in death, complete annihilation, and that wipes out any differences between us. So not only does the God of Ecclesiastes seem to completely run counter to the traditional orthodox understanding of God as as someone who pays just retribution to good human deeds in this life, 
But there also seems to be no hope of future vindication or reward after death either. I mean, at least for all his trouble, Job gets rewarded with a new family, right? And in Daniel, there's the possibility of the resurrection of the dead. But again, none of this seems to be a possibility in Ecclesiastes. And then related to this, of course, is the idea of God's, God's wisdom. I mean, in Psalms, and even in the book of Job, we're told that God holds to a kind of rational plan in His creation. That He's, um, he's governing by a kind of wisdom, however inscrutable it might be. Well, again, what we see in Ecclesiastes is the opposite of this. There's no intelligent plan in God's work down here. There's no cosmic intelligibility or any consistency which would suggest that there's a higher wisdom at work. There's just no evidence that God pursues a a definite aim in His work. No, there's just seeming capriciousness. Really, in the universe of Ecclesiastes, a mystifying, tragic chance rules. We're in the dark without much cooperation where absolutely everything is transitory. So to go back to the Bertrand Russell quote then, in Ecclesiastes we just don't see any ground or evidence for the proposition that God is the kind of being we traditionally take Him to be. From the author of Ecclesiastes then, what we get is a kind of, a kind of thorough skepticism. But importantly, this isn't any kind of purely intellectual skepticism. Or, or a skepticism that, um, that jumps to conclusions. No, it's the opposite of this. It's the kind of skepticism born of authentic experience and empiricism. This is someone who, and I'm talking about the author of Ecclesiastes, this is someone who jumps into life and looks at what's right in front of him, looks at life for, for what it is, and just well, just discovers no evidence of the orthodox view of God. This is someone who refuses to accept anything on faith. As, um, as one commentator puts it, it's someone who submits received opinions to the acid test of experience. And the result, again, is a decidedly skeptical conclusion. You know what? Now that I think about it, not all, but in some important ways, the god of Ecclesiastes reminds me a little of what the, um, what the Greek philosopher Epicurus says about the gods of his own time. What I have in mind here is how, is how distant and uninvolved the god of Ecclesiastes is and how chance seems to govern. Well, this is very, very similar to what we get in Epicurus's view of things. And actually, I wonder if there's a connection here or some influence that Epicurus had on Ecclesiastes. Anyway, so, so Epicurus doesn't deny the, uh, the popular view that the gods exist. But he does think, however, that people have the wrong conception of them. A little reflection, he thinks, tells us that the gods, being perfect, are completely happy. As such, they're, they're without anger and spite and so without any motivation to punish human beings. In fact, even their gratefulness towards us, you know, for our offerings and sacrifices and so on, is inconsistent with their nature as perfect and blessed beings. 
For, for that would imply some sort of dependence on us for their happiness, and so some kind of weakness on their part. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the sum of it for Epicurus is that the gods are, are completely self-sufficient. That is, they have everything they need for their own happiness, and so they don't concern themselves with us at all. Indeed, Epicurus pictures the gods as dwelling far away from us, in um, empty spaces between worlds, leading perfectly blissful lives, concerned entirely with themselves, never touching human life. In fact, they may not even be aware of us. Now, I'm not saying this is exactly what's going on in Ecclesiastes. But for a book in the Bible, there are scant references to God in it. And the sense that we do get of him is one of a distant figure who works, if at all, in very mysterious ways. So mysterious, in fact, that sometimes we get the sense that he's not even there at all. A few episodes ago, I brought up the quote, the quote that likened writing about music to dancing about architecture. But surely that little bit of wisdom doesn't apply to rambling about music on a podcast. So against all reason, I'll keep going. And if I'm going to be so unreasonable, might as well try and weave in our good buddy, Albert Camus. So there's this old Cure song. I think it might have been their first single. It was called Killing an Arab. A controversial song, even at the time, that was just begging to be misused and misunderstood. For good or for ill, it's actually just a brief summary of The Stranger by Albert Camus. One that I used in high school to finish my Camus essay instead of, you know, reading the book. Didn't work out. Mrs. Jordan didn't appreciate, I guess, my essay's focus on The Stranger's apparent lo-fi production and interesting baseline. But... As a sidebar, she did like my stolen Guns N' Roses lyrics that I submitted as poetry. Sorry, Mrs. Jordan, I'm a mean machine, been drinking gasoline, did not spring from my 15-year-old suburban mind. But now that I'm of a, a retirement age and I have time to crack open a few books, it might just seem that Mr. Camus and Mr. Ecclesiastes might have a surprising amount of things in common. I can't believe you, you handed in Guns N' Roses lyrics to Madame Jordan and claimed it as your own work. But it makes sense. I mean, I've seen your own attempt at poetry, which is not too far off the, the limericks of a child, really. Anyway, to, to get back to your point, it is true, Camus and Ecclesiastes do have quite a bit in common, actually. Okay, so let me start with Camus. So Camus rejects belief in God, and he also rejects belief in an afterlife. And because of this, he also doesn't see how there could be any eternal values of any kind. Life for him is therefore ultimately meaningless. And everything we do is marked by, by futility. And that's because everything ends in death. This is the world of the human being without God. Okay, but here's the thing. Even though Camus denies God's existence eternal values, and any kind of life after death, we can still find fulfillment in life and even happiness, he thinks. Well, when you think about it, 
most of this is remarkably similar to the picture we get in Ecclesiastes. But in order to really see this, let's even get a bit more specific about Camus' view. Okay, so what Camus does as a way of presenting his own outlook is he appropriates the famous myth of Sisyphus from from Greek mythology. So basically, the myth goes like this. Sisyphus was punished by gods for his grand contempt of them, and they wanted to make sure to give him the worst punishment possible. So what happened to him was, was this. He was taken to a mountain in the midst of what we must imagine to be a dry and and barren and and lifeless landscape. Here he was condemned to ceaselessly roll a boulder to the top of that mountain, only to have it endlessly roll back down again. Now, there would be no respite from this. No, No escape. He was to perform this same task for eternity. Now, of course, what makes this the worst form of punishment possible is that it's marked by by ultimate futility. The the boulder never rests at the top. There is no um, temple to build there. There is no hope of success at all. Sisyphus' whole ordeal is absurd, as Camus says. Okay, now for those of you who, who don't know, Camus takes Sisyphus' situation to represent our own. We are all like Sisyphus in the sense that our lives, our projects, are marked by ultimate futility. In our case, our death. In other words, what death does for Camus is it cancels out everything we've done and renders them, in the long run, meaningless. But, like I said earlier, Camus believes that we can find happiness and joy despite all of this. Actually, more accurately because of it. He thinks Sisyphus can be happy despite the futility of his project. Okay, so now notice how similar the thoughts of Camus about the absurdity of life are with the whole theme of of vanity in Ecclesiastes. That's to say, both seem to conclude that life is is a closed cycle, so to speak, with no ultimate purpose. I mean, Look at the main theme in Ecclesiastes. Everything, says the preacher, is vanity, and a a chasing after the wind, and death is the destiny of every man. In other words, everything is empty, futile, and short-lived, because the only sure certainty is death. Actually, what's incredible about this view being presented in Ecclesiastes is just how Well, how modern it is. I mean, on the one hand, it belongs to a pre-modern culture that believed in God. Yet, all of its major themes are modern, and ones that seem to fit right into Camus' atheistic and existential framework. Like, um, Like, most notably, the themes of alienation and anxiety caused by a confrontation with the absurdity of life and of death. Okay, but again, here's the thing. Despite the fact that life seems to be ultimately meaningless, both Camus and the author of Ecclesiastes still think that life should be, should be lived. Now, why and how? Well, 
Partly it has to do with the fact that both Camus and the author of Ecclesiastes focus less on approaching life from a, from a rational or intellectual point of view. They don't rely on human reason to try to discover the, um, the essence of life. Actually, they, they both realize the, the inadequacy of reason to do this. Our intellectual perspective is just too limited to permit any assurances about the meanings of things. So they just jump into life with passion. They just confront the world head on, and it's from this that the life-affirming attitude is born. In other words, they both overcome their alienation and absurdity through the blood and the bone of their physical life. They both live fully. They satiate themselves with life. I mean, our minds might be limited, but our bodies are not. We can know something. The, the world around us is something that we can see and feel and smell. The flesh and blood of experience. It's all right there in front of us. A maximal life is at our doorstep, an overabundance of it, actually. And um, work, too, is there for us. As Ecclesiastes says, we can embrace our toil. In other words, there's a liberation in not trying to understand everything and instead just working in our daily existence. There's freedom in not trying to always be an intellectual spectator of life, but instead a doer, someone engaged with the stuff around us and making that the project of our lives. So, what is all this but to be passionately committed to our mortal being? It's to not take anything for granted and to take stock of what you have now before the evil days come and the years draw nigh. It's to take a good long look around you before the windows are dimmed. It's to look and to listen and to touch and to feel and to eat and to drink and enjoy and to love. It's not to spend too much time thinking about matters above the sun, and instead to take advantage only of those things you can be certain of, to enjoy being alive without theorizing too much about it. It's to take advantage of our youth. It's to enjoy the, the light of the sun. It's to remember that food and drink and work and love are gifts, whether they come from God or not. You've been listening to The Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Simon V.